Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast, live stream number 200 and something or other. It is. It it's is. so 200 and something. It's hard to believe that it's 200 and something. And it's 2020 something. It is 2020 something. I, I'm actually reasonably competent. It's 2024. And you know how uh, I know that? No, I do not. Because shit's especially bananas. Mm. Yeah, already. Yeah. And it's only just begun. It is in the excellent phrase of my oldest and dearest friend, looking to be a particularly banana pants year. <laughs> banana pants. That's better. Banana yeah, pants. It's, it's yep. it, uh, for a wider audience. Mm -hmm. um, yep. Yeah, so it is the 200 and something or other Seven. episode. 207. Mm -hmm. 207. And I have no idea if it's prime, but I think it might be. I didn't look into it. I kind of think it's not, but I didn't look into it. But Zach's going to figure it out for us. Yeah. All right. So yeah. if any of y'all out there have factors other than 1 and 207, we're up to find out about it. Okay. So apparently not prime. It just doesn't feel primed. All right. Me. That is a case of misinformation, an honest error. I did not intend to mislead anybody, and it was not a truth that I was using to undermine people's trust in government. So it's not malinformation. Um, it was just a simple error. Yeah, I'm wondering if uh, attributing primeness to non-prime numbers could ever actually help a person become suspicious of their government. I don't know. So yeah, I don't know. the other factors? Besides 207? 1 and 207, 3, 9, 23, and 69. Oh, boy. So yeah, not only was I wrong, I was really very wrong. Yeah. There's quite a few factors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, here we are. You are. I am uh, Dr. Brett Weinstein. Mm -hmm. I remain Dr. Brett Weinstein and will for some time to come, yes. I think. Yes. 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 And you are Dr. Heather Hine. I am. Will remain so. Um, hey, join us on Rumble. That's where we are streaming too. Uh, we'll be lots of places uh, after that, but join us on Rumble. Also, please join us on Locals. After this episode, uh, this time we're going to switch up how we do our Q&As. We're going to do a uh, few of them, uh, but we are going to do them on Locals only. And uh, on, for now, the second episode of the month, which is this one. And we're going to be taking questions through the chat, which we've never done before. We can't see the chat during the live streams, uh, but we're going to do, we're going to try that this time. So come over, hop over onto Locals, join us there. Um, there's a watch party going on now. And then for the Q&A, we'll actually be able to see the chat. And uh, bring your banana pants. Leave your banana pants at home. <laughs> but actually, wear some other kind of pants. Bring your banana wine if you have it, but leave the banana pants at home. I know. That's good stuff. I know, it I is. Remember it well. It is. Um, so, um, yeah, that's that's basically it. Also, you know, there's always, if, if you're looking for evidence of banana pants, you can go over to our store at darkhorsestore.org and find things about Pfizer and um, PsyOps and blueberries, which are not banana pants at all. And Goliath. And Goliath, Goliath which is memorialized yes. at the store. Yeah. So we'll talk more about other ways to find us and uh, and support us and such at the end. Uh, but we will start today's episode, as we always do, with our three carefully chosen sponsors. Uh, know that if we are reading ads uh, for sponsors, as we do, three of them at the top of every show, it's because we actually truly stand behind these products or services. Uh, we do not accept sponsors uh, who make things or provide services that we do not stand by. With that said, our first sponsor this week is brand new to us. It's a new year. We've got a few new sponsors. It's pretty exciting. And this one is Man Man. We are so excited to be sponsored by them. What if you could take an animal-based diet approach? I'm going to try that again. What if you could take an animal-based diet approach to your skincare, to your toothpaste, to your deodorant? Van Man facilitates you doing just that. And every single one of their products that we have tried is phenomenal. 
The Van Man Company has a plethora of amazing products, including the one they are probably best known for, Tallow and Honey Balm. It's a miracle balm that works on everything from anti-aging to athlete's foot, and it's totally edible. I don't really recommend that, but there are better things to eat than, you know, than balm that you might put on your face. But uh, you could eat it, uh, which is one of the signature features of Van Man's products, that they make their they make what they make with entirely uh, food-grade edible products. Um, that said, most things you want to eat uh, don't really belong on your face and vice versa. However, um, there are things in here that you would want to eat, just probably not in this particular configuration. Van Man then stepped it up even further with their bison tallow on honey balm. It is out of this world. They've got versions with and without essential oils and both have tallow from 100% grass-fed bison. Bison are fairly lean, so their fat is particularly nutrient-dense. Manuka honey, which has considerable antibacterial properties, organic royal jelly, which is what the hive produces for queen bees to eat exclusively, and organic cold-pressed olive oil from hand-picked olives in Greece. So you could see you could eat all of that stuff, and you probably have eaten all of those things if you are in any way like us, just not in this particular forum. I recommend this goes on the outside. You can eat the things individually to put on the inside. Mm-hmm. So Van Man's Bison Tallow and Honey Balm is fantastic, smooth, rich, decadent. You don't need much, so it goes a long way. And Van Man also has both tallow-based deodorant and sunblock, featuring all edible ingredients. Get 10% off your first order when you go to vanmanscompany.com slash darkhorse and use code darkhorse. That's vanmanscompany, V-A-N-M-A-N-S-C-O-M-P-A-N-Y dot com forward slash darkhorse to get 10% off your first order. You won't be sorry. Awesome. <laughs> no, it, it is awesome. I'm yep. stuck a little bit on... Honey bomb, which is such a an awesome combination of syllables that I just honey bomb, honey bomb. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, um, yeah it's like know, a, it's where, like where a, bombs spelled differently, it could even work, and you just end up kind of sticky. Right. Either way, really, yeah. yeah. It's it's like a, a a charm offensive, a honey bomb. Yeah, you know? totally. Yeah, yeah this, this stuff is great. This tallow and honey bomb, both in the original beef version and the bison version, they're they're remarkable. Okay, speaking of things to eat, Sundays is our next sponsor. This is wow. Maddie's all-time favorite. It's one of our favorites, too. Uh, it is dog food. Uh, and the reason it's one of our favorites is because when you make your dog this happy, while giving her amazing food that's good for her, what's not to be thrilled about? So Sundays, as longtime listeners will know, makes dry dog food, but it's not your usual dry dog food. This is no standard issue burnt kibble. The standard high-end burnt kibble that we were feeding Maddie seemed to please her just fine. She's a Labrador. Labs will basically eat anything. But it turns out that Maddie does discriminate. She loves the food that Sundays makes. Seriously, loves it. If we run out of Sundays and give her the previous high-end kibble instead, she is clearly disappointed. We should be giving her Sundays. She knows it, and we know it. Not only is Sunday's Maddie's favorite, it is also far better for her than that standard burnt kibble that comprises most dried dog food. Sunday's is the only human-grade air-dried dog food. Air-drying combines the best of cooked and raw approaches, like raw. Air-drying preserves nutrients and tastes better than the high-heat methods. Better than raw, though, Sunday's unique air-drying process includes a kill step, which kills pathogens, so unlike freeze-dried raw or frozen raw dog foods, there is no food safety or handling risk with Sunday's. And Sunday's has no artificial binders, synthetic additives, or other garbage. All of Sunday's ingredients are easy to pronounce and healthy for dogs to eat. Sunday's is an amazing way to feed your dog. There's no fridge, no prep, no cleanup, no wet dog food smells. It's a total pleasure for the human interacting with it, which is a bonus. In a blind taste test, Sunday's outperformed leading competitors 42-0. And our own little anecdote, Maddie, our Labrador, not so little, but little enough, supports that result. 
She bounces and spins and leaps in anticipation of a bowl of sundaes, way more than for her previous food. Do you want to make your dog happy with her diet and keep her healthy? Try sundaes. We've got a special deal for our listeners. Receive 35% off your first order. Go to sundaysfordogs.com slash darkhorse or use code darkhorse at checkout. That's S-U-N-D-A-Y-S-F-O-R-D-O-G-S dot com forward slash darkhorse. Switch to Sundays and feel good about what you're feeding your dog. Not only that, but in some sort of mini collapse scenario, if you ended up having to share your dog's food, you would be so glad it's Sundays. Uh, I speak from experience. I mean, not from the mini apocalypse experience, but from the uh, having tried it and it's good. And not also from getting down on the ground and eating from her bowl, which is gross. Oh, also undignified. I mean, just really bad. That doesn't necessarily stop you. (laughs) I, I believe mean, that <laughs> that's true that yes. is true but i mean that, that was more dignified than you would you would imagine yeah much better much more dignified. i mean it was a little badass at some level right and i you mean you, we're only taking your word for it i guess that's true yeah i, I didn't see that's it true. well yeah. i might have to repeat it you might on camera even all right all right i i'm willing but here it's, we go I, mean, I have not tasted it but it looks edible it is yeah it is edible yeah. all right Our final sponsor this Mm -hmm. week, it will be no surprise to you, is MD Hearing. Mm -hmm. Now, MD Hearing does not make hearing ear dogs, but it does make hearing aids. Now, we have friends, what, hearing ear dog? Yeah, it's good. I think so. Yeah, I I think there's a, it's clearly an open niche in the market. It's a thought on thunk, but Mm -hmm. now thousands of people have thunk it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I think is progress. And now they're wishing that they didn't have their hearing ear dogs turned on so they didn't have to think thunk. thunk. Totally. But if you had a hearing ear dog, I know what you should feed it. Okay. Back to the end. (laughs) Um, We have friends and family who have hearing loss. There's a good chance that you do too. While we don't have need for hearing aids ourselves, we have a good friend who does. We asked her to assess MD Hearing's newest product carefully and honestly. Her testimonial is at the end of this ad. MD Hearing makes high-quality, simple, effective hearing aids for a a tiny fraction of what most hearing aids cost, helping bring audio clarity and capacity to people who might not otherwise be able to afford it. MD Hearing was founded by an ENT surgeon who made it his mission to develop a quality hearing aid that anyone could afford. MD Hearing is an FDA-registered rechargeable hearing aid that costs a fraction of what typical hearing aids cost. MD Hearing's brand new XS model costs over 90% less than clinic hearing aids. You don't need a prescription, which also means there's no middleman. Here's the newest testimonial from our friend who has substantial hearing loss and who relies on hearing aids. We asked her to try MD Hearing's newest product, and this is what she said. MD Hearing Aid's new Neo XS hearing aids are powerful, energy efficient, and tiny. They come with settings for quiet, social, noisy, and restaurant situations. The battery life is over 18 hours with a short recharge time. The restaurant setting actually works better than the restaurant settings on my far more expensive pair, amplifying sound with se- uh, within several feet of me, muffling sound in the rest of the environment. Wow, that sounds good. That was me editorializing. Mm. Back to her quote. Mm-hmm. I also tested them in a room with white with a white noise generator, in Discord voice chat, and on phone calls with and without speaker. As with the previous sets I've tested, the only significant difference between these and my usual set, hearing aids that cost about 12 times as much, is smartphone integration with app control. But that sing- with that single exception, MD Hearing Aid is making all the hearing functionality for, e- for very expensive hearing aids accessible to everyone. End testimonial. 
So if you want MD hearing aids, smallest hearing aid ever, go to shopmdhearing.com and use promo code DARKHORSE to get their new $397 when you buy a pair offer. That's S-H-O-P-M-D-H-E-A-R-I-N-G.com and use the promo code DARKHORSE to get their new $397 when you buy a pair offer. All right. You know... Reading something that you've never read before is always a bit of an adventure with me. But, you know, I got through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you did. You did. Uh, so we got a couple of, uh, sort of big, broad topics uh, today. Do you want to start? Sure. Why not? All right. All right. Um, so I'll just promise we'll get to fats later. Whoa. Yeah. 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 So totally. Fats. Yeah. Um, I mean, yes, we will get there soon enough. First, what you're going to talk about is the strange aftermath of my discussion with Tucker Carlson about primarily uh, the mechanism of vaccine damage and the WHO pandemic preparedness plan that is currently hurtling towards a planet near you. Um, the one that you are on. Yes. In yeah. fact, that very planet is yeah. uh, is threatening to be uh, tyrannized by the World Health Organization um, under this new preparedness plan, which will be voted on by the member nations in May, May of 2024. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We, we talked about the WHO plan a couple months back on Dark Horse. Um, but I should say that uh, we didn't know that your Tucker interview was coming out uh, this week. We would have said something. Um, in fact, we've heard from a few viewers. Hey, you didn't mention this. Um, so you'd recorded this not too long ago, but um, um, but not this week. And um, so it came at least came as a surprise to me that it came out. And, um, and it's fantastic. And it has mostly garnered, um, you know, fantastic responses and has been has been watched far and wide, like something something more than like 6 million views, 6 million views yeah. in three days. I don't know when, what it's at now. But uh, anyway, it reached a lot of people. And there was a lot of very good feedback um, from all sorts of folks who reached out having seen it, um, mm -hmm. both people that we know well and people we don't who said that they had thought it had encapsulated these issues extremely well, and that it had, it had woken some people up to specifically the danger in the who document which you know as we know is very difficult yeah. to describe it is intentionally difficult to make clear the hazard to civil liberties that this document or pair of documents um poses because it's you know it's designed to be boring and it's designed to seem remote and basically uh like somebody else's problem not very important because if there's anything bad in it of course your nation would never let that um you. That's why we have experts <laughs> to protect us from problems like that. Right. Um, and in fact, you know, one of the things in the interview, Tucker sprung a clip of Tedros talking mm, about yeah. the claim that this was a threat to sovereignty. And um, so I had never heard this. He's responding to the claim, which he says is on social media and in podcast, right? Right. Um, He's probably responding to, to us and a few others. And John Campbell, who, right. Um, <clears throat> um, and he says that's just wrong. Right. Now, what I, you know. But we, I mean, read the document. The, these, we, we talked extensively about the document, and it clearly is. Yeah. Well, what I said in on Tucker's program was that Tedros was just lying. And, of course, what he said was tantamount to a lie. But 
on re-listening to it, I now see something more in what Tedros said, mm -hmm. which is this is not a violation of sovereignty. And then he implies the reason it is not a violation of sovereignty is because your nations in which you have nominally elected people to govern you mm -hmm. will have signed on to it. So he is effectively acknowledging yeah. that they are going to override your sovereignty, but says that that's all within sovereignty because you agreed to it. When will you have agreed to it? Well, you were supposed to not notice that it was happening, and then your government was supposed to agree to it in May, and then the um, WHO was going to declare some emergency, and suddenly things that you were never asked about were going to show up on your doorstep. It's like he's making a claim of a kind of meta-representative democracy in which uh, your government <clears throat> is who you actually elected, even though it's now, you know, <clears throat> for most of us, a couple of levels deep of representative democracy. And <clears throat> they are then using that proxy and saying, okay, now you get, like, the who gets to actually do, our do its bidding on our behalf because you voted for us. Well, there are two things that are relevant here. One of them is... Uh, you and I sometimes reference the beginning of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in which there is a parallel uh, set of disasters happening at two very different scales. Uh, Arthur Dent's house is being knocked down by some local uh, construction group to put through a highway mm -hmm. and his knowledge that his house was to be knocked down was somehow bureaucratically buried so that he didn't quite notice that it was happening until he notices uh, something out his window yellow. as he's brushing his teeth and it begins to dawn on him yellow. There's something out there. It's a bulldozer. And at the exact moment that they're about to knock down his house, a hyperspace bypass is scheduled to be put right through where the earth is. And so the earth is going to be destroyed by the Vogons and there is some back and forth. Somebody on Earth manages to send a message back to the Vogons saying, you can't destroy the Earth to put in a bypass. And the Vogons say, well, the paperwork that was supposed to allow you to complain about this has been on file at yeah, Alpha The, the, the right time to complain is passed. There right. was plenty of opportunity. It was in the basement, and yes, the stairs were missing, and it was flooded, and there were crocodiles, and it was in a locked cabinet that was rusty and probably would have given you tetanus if you'd gotten near it and all this. But there but, was an opportunity. Yeah, don't say you didn't have the right to challenge this, and yeah. you know now that time has passed. So anyway, Tedros is effectively... Right. Tedros is effectively invoking this defense that some document that you barely know is happening has moved through some channels that you're barely aware exist that is going to result in all of your freedoms disappearing. But the point is, you can't say you didn't have the right to object through your representatives. Um, now, of course, as we do object, they come back with that ridiculous uh, response. But the other thing that's relevant is a provision in the law, which, you know, I'm no lawyer, I'm a biologist, but... There is a provision in the law that you can't sign away your constitutional rights, mm -hmm. right? You actually just don't have the legal right to do it. You can't decide to enslave yourself um, to somebody else, right? But the, can, can the government decide for you? No, it can't. But the point is, if, if, if Tedros is saying that, well, you have the right to elect representatives and they have the right to object to the loss of your sovereignty. The answer is they don't have any say over my sovereignty to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. My constitutional rights are what they are. They don't have the right to get rid of those things. So what the hell are you talking about, Tedros? Right? That's, that's garbage from one end to the other. But anyway, let's put that aside. So this interview, this discussion between me and Tucker comes out. I should say that the 
history of this discussion works as follows. Um, we caught on, I think, somewhat late to the fact that this who thing was happening. And as soon as we looked into it, it alarmed us tremendously, right? We, you know, it was easy to ignore it. And then as soon as you look at it, it's like, oh my God, what are they contemplating? As soon as we had figured out what it was, I reached out to Tucker and I said, do you know about this? And he said a little, and he described what he thought. And I said, well, you're not going to believe this. And I told him what we had come to understand. And he said, would you be interested in coming to talk about it? And I said, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's why the thing happened. But when it came out, in addition to all of the um, praise and the uh, reports that people had been alerted to something that they hadn't been aware of, there was a tremendous amount of pushback from people, um, most of whom I'd never heard of. Mm-hmm. But it was amazing. There was like this whole layer of COVID dissidents who were enraged by this thing. And let's just say, I think that the fact of this is actually useful because as much as it is very unpleasant to face an enraged mob accusing you of all sorts of things. Um, It does allow us to see a vulnerability in what should be the protective layer that prevents tyrannical things from happening. And I would claim that multiple things, and in fact, I put out a tweet to this effect, I believe multiple things are contributing to this. One, dissidents by their very nature tend to be lone wolves. Mm -hmm. And lone wolves tend not to be very good at teaming up. Now, even my use of the word team in this discussion with Tucker enraged people, right? So what I said, and this was clipped by some people in broadcast, was that Goliath had made a terrible error. And Goliath's terrible error was to pick on all of the independent thinkers and drive them out of the institutions. And so what I said is that Goliath screwed up because by driving out everybody who can think from the institutions, and what I should have said is he drove out everybody who has principles and insight and courage, right? He just swept the institutions of those people. By doing that, he created the dream team, right? We're outgunned, but we have all of the people that you would want to fight back against Goliath. And that was a fatal error on Goliath's part. Wow, did that piss some people off. And they're pissed off for a couple of reasons. Go ahead. Um, I am not as online as, as you are. And um, I have seen some of what's going on, but not a lot. And one of the things that I wonder, and I, I, I don't want to derail you here, but... Um, it looks to me like some number of these people aren't people. Oh, no doubt. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm left with um, a decided question about to what degree, you know, there are now real people who are chiming in. But if if the originators were none of them real people or, you know, or if they were paid um, by something else that is not them and that it's not obvious, uh, then this discussion means something very, very different. Yes. And the question is, what do you do when you can't, you know, clearly some of these people are real. We even know some of them. Yeah. Um, very likely some of them are not real and that 
you know, you would imagine that Goliath, having been thoroughly embarrassed by the dissidents over the course of COVID and now presiding over the wreckage of a narrative that the public now sees through, that Goliath would love to create tensions in that group of people so that they cannot point in the same direction. And in fact, of course, this would be happening as the World Health Organization is gearing up its own uh, tyrannical rematch. You yeah. would want the people who fight tyranny to be fighting each other, right? Wouldn't that be wouldn't that be great? So yes, I agree there's an inorganic part of this, and it may be that the inorganic part seeds the organic part. Right. It may be that they work in synergy. Um, but anyway, a number of things are going on, and I think it is worth understanding this because, I mean, let's face it, everything is riding on our ability to repel tyranny at not only the national level, but the international level. We now know that. COVID taught us this. Mm -hmm. So so my invoking the term dream team triggered a bunch of people, and yes, probably some bots and sock puppets too, but it triggered a bunch of people to react in a way I absolutely did not anticipate, right? My saying, hey, Goliath kicked out all of the people who can think from the institutions and created the dream team caused a bunch of people to react as if I had said, hey, there's a dream team and you're not on it. I didn't say anything about who's on it. They also said, who are you to decide who's on it? I didn't say anything about that either. I just said, you've got a bunch of people who are now have the same enemy, who have also all of the ability to think and that that's a good thing. I, it's hard for me to imagine how you even come to imagine that I'm trying to uh, impose some kind of narrative discipline. No, I actually think that disagreement is good. And it's how we got to understand as much as we did about COVID. So, well, I mean, I guess, I guess this is part of why I don't know why it's worth engaging with people who object to words like team. I mean, like it's, it's such such a low level it's it's not even an argument, you know. It's it's just it's just pedantry. Um, if I mean that's not even the right. It's that's being too generous. I don't even know what it is. It's 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 like less than kindergarten level taunting. Well, so first of all, I, I did engage one of these people, um, or I tried to, uh, and it, it sort of went superficially well, and then it didn't go well at all. And I don't know why that is. But I, I do want to point out a couple things. One, the name of this podcast is Dark Horse. That's not an accident. This podcast is about people that you wouldn't expect to find themselves at the forefront of an important fight or whatever it is, who show up out of nowhere. That is expected right to the point that it, this podcast was named that before there was ever a battle over COVID, before there was a COVID. So the point is, the idea... At least before we knew it. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. true. But the idea that I or we are gunning for some elitist version of events where only, you know, people who are deemed worthy are on the team fighting Goliath is insane. Second thing is... How... Crazy is it? I mean, if we can agree that tyranny is bad, and we can agree that whatever their likelihood of success, that the World Health Organization is involved in gearing up for tyranny that any dissident ought to oppose, 
then you have to ask yourself the question, how much good was done by six million people becoming aware of this in three days, right? Whatever you, your problem with me might be, you have to just ask the question, what is the net effect of that level of exposure for a, uh, an emerging tyrannical plan? Right, And if your point is, this is simple, look, you can challenge me on anything you want. You can say I'm wrong. And by all means, if you are right and I'm wrong, teach. Right, But be prepared that I may not be saying what you think I'm saying. To the extent that I seem to be adhering to some perspective that seems obviously wrong to you, maybe there's something you haven't seen yet. And I mean, I would also say that, um, you know, since we have we have both been professors and we have both seen... Um, hostility of various sorts, uh, either because we were challenging uh, previously held beliefs by students, or they just didn't get what we were saying, or you know whatever, uh, or they or they often they they were certain that they had it right and we didn't, right? And you know this has happened outside the classroom as well for sure, but it's easier to talk about within a classroom because everyone's been in a classroom, pretty much. Very often, very very often when a student would be certain that that I or you were just being willfully ignorant, were, were refusing to understand, the problem was actually, I you're not being clear. I can't, I cannot track what it is that you are saying. And until, until I can't understand what it is that you are saying, until you can put it in enough different ways that I can understand it, then no, I am not going to, which was often desired. Like, you need to present this other view. You've not yet clarified to me what the other view is. There's no presenting something until it is clear what it is. Furthermore, if we're talking about science and we've got some hypothesis on the table and you say, I've got an alternative hypothesis. Okay, what does it predict? What, you know, what is the predictive power of that alternative hypothesis? If you cannot answer that question, there, there will be some nuance here, but in general, if you cannot answer that question, what does your purported alternative hypothesis predict? Then it is not an alternative hypothesis to this thing that we're talking about, and therefore it doesn't deserve equal stature on, on the stage of discussing hypotheses. So very often the people who are certain, certain, A, certainty is, is a big red flag, um, that if you are certain that you are right now and you have always been right, how is that even possible? And if you are certain that you have the alternative truth that no one else is seeing, figure out a better way to say it then so that other people can understand it. Because by and large, when this when that sort of thing happens, it's actually you you do not have the clarity in your own head that you think you do. And I'm sorry, but being able to communicate it is part of knowing it. And if you cannot communicate it, then you don't know it. And there's a good thing. There's a good possibility. The thing that you think you know, you don't, and that there's nothing there. Well, and it's implied by what you're saying, but the next thing for you to do is to return to the thinking stage. If what if you've got a model, but it doesn't have a prediction, you need to go back and figure it out. And what you mm -hmm. discover in pursuing the prediction is you will find holes in what you thought. You may find the real model that you didn't see because you hadn't mm -hmm. given it enough scrutiny to look for the prediction. So anyway, it's the natural part 
of coming to a, a better understanding does involve scrutinizing your own stuff and saying, you know, if this is true, why is it that I don't have a prediction? That sort of thing. But in any case, the, the reason I say it is a good thing that this happened is because the ability to recognize this vulnerability, it's not like this is the first dissident movement that's ever been uh, torn apart from the inside by infighting. Right? That's a regular feature of dissidency. If you want the dissidents to beat the tyrants, then we have to learn what this is. And frankly, I just, you know, yes, people will take it as condescending. But if you're involved in that, then level up. Come to understand where you are. If you understand better than the people who are on the big podcast, Okay, refine your message, figure out how to get it in front of us, and we'll elevate you. But, you know, and I'm not saying it's our job to do that, but the point is you're looking at an organic movement of people, you know, you and I are biology professors, and suddenly we're out here on the internet discussing these things in public because, A, in part, it overlaps the skill set that we developed as biology professors, in part because becoming being a biology professor was no longer tenable at the point that the administration of the college we worked at turned the college over to, frankly, a crazed mob that doesn't look so different than the dissidents who are currently claiming that they've been mistreated. So anyway, I do think it is valuable for all of us to recognize it. And I want to, I want to draw a, an important distinction here. The dissident movement does not agree with itself about what happened during COVID. It does not agree with itself about the priorities going forward. There are large zones of agreement, and then there are large zones of disagreement. There's no problem with that. That's how we get smarter, right? So there's lots of people, uh, Dennis Raincourt, for example, Nick Hudson. These are people with whom we have profound disagreements. But there's no disrespect, right? Mm -hmm. There's no inability to sit across the table from the person and say, actually, here's why I think you have that wrong. And they can say, here's why you have it wrong. And the point is, sooner or later, these things resolve over time. That's the and way I, it and should I, work. And I believe, I've, I've met some of these people and, and not nearly as many as you have, um, but I believe always um, that there is a shared interest in figuring out what is right. That I, you know, on the question of SARS-CoV-2, the virus, does it exist? What I have seen suggests to me that it does. I don't want it to. I'm not invested in that as, as, as a reality, as an outcome. What I want is to know if I am wrong, that I am wrong, so that I can reconsider all of the other things that I think that may hinge on that basic, basic, uh, fundamental assumption. That you know, that is what I want. Now we do, we, we will start to identify with some of our beliefs, right? Even things that we think are factual, we will start to to wear them like they're they're part of who we are, and that is when it becomes dangerous because it is harder to back off. Um, but I think you know one of one of the big one of the big issues that uh, people, as you were saying, you know, in the dissident community disagree about is whether or not there is actually a virus. And um, I don't, you know, I, I know what I think based on what I have seen. And it's not important to me that I'm right. What's important to me is that I discover what is right as soon as I can. Now, that doesn't mean that it, you know, that's my priority 
because there are there are an infinite number of things about which people disagree. And, you know, we are constantly, both you and I are constantly being dragged into your, people are attempting to drag us into like, oh, this thing I think you're wrong about and therefore you have to focus here so that you could clarify your understanding there. It's like, you know what? I get to choose. I get to choose which of the things that I am thinking about right now I'm going to focus on. And that allows me to have in the background some things which, yes, may be wrong, but this is part of why I say that certainty is one of the biggest problems and that people who claim that they are certain and that the only way to be trusted is to have been right first all along, you know what? You're never going to be right first all along. And so if that's really your precondition for trusting someone, you're going to be wrong. Yeah. Um, there's also, how can I say this? One of the things that I think is clearly true is that, I, I unfortunately, I don't have a synonym for the word game. I know from taking game theory very seriously that the problem with game being in the title of it is it suggests a kind of trivial, frivolous um, aspect. And you and I are deadly serious about getting stuff right and standing for what matters, standing for uh, individual liberty, sovereignty, um, informed consent, all of these values. The ability to do that, to, to have a discussion with somebody like Tucker or Rogan, um, or to go on, you know, even worse, the worst of these are uh, network programs where they give you three minutes, you know, maybe they tell you they give you five minutes and then, you know, three minutes before they put you on, they say it's been cut to three because somebody went long and you're trying to keep your wits about you. It's very difficult. But the thing about um, a big, a, a live to tape is the term for it but where you have a discussion nobody's going to edit it and you're trying to get it right uh, on camera that is much more difficult than it looks that is a skill that involves tensions between many different values and one of those values is getting it right right but getting it right if you're not clear is not valuable Right. And so there is a tendency for people who have not, you know, I would say in any of these opportunities, there is some, let's call it a value. What could be accomplished with that much time in front of that audience? Right. That is always greater than what you set out to accomplish. Right. Because you don't understand what might be accomplished. So you've already lost some value in going to what you can imagine doing in front of that audience in that amount of time. And then what you actually accomplish is even less than that, right? It's difficult to do the job. And so my point would be, if you haven't faced that situation, then you may think, you know, why didn't he say this, right? Why didn't he get to that? And it's really not a fair comparison. You need, you need to understand that actually the job is complex and um, that the trade-offs are much greater than it seems when you're just watching the product of it. Well, and I think you mentioned that um, you know, the mob at Evergreen had analogies to, to, to this mob. And that's in part because mob is mob. Mm -hmm. 
but it's in part also um, because, and you know, maybe this is in fact a relatively or actually universal feature of mobs, or of just you know the the uninformed angry, uh, which is that I, I'm I'm reminded of I believe it was Nancy Rollman who first started pointing this out about the woke mobs. Um, not Evergreen in particular, but these these mobs, you know, Antifa, like these mobs that just take over. And, you know, what took over Portland in 2020 after George Floyd died, uh, just night after night after night of rampant destruction, right? And what it was, what became utterly clear, and in fact, ultimately, some of them even said it, was we just want to destroy. Like, that's what we do. We just want to destroy. We have no ability they did not say this, but this was, you know, Nancy's framing. Like they have no ability to create. Yeah. They are, they are only destructive. They only see something which they have decided is not good. And instead of imagining a world which might be better and working towards that, they say must destroy that which I see, which I do not like. And this feels exactly the same the same way. And you know, I see how you could frame it as like, no, I know what he should have said. No, because this is actually. A, a creation, a, a conversation, you know, either a live stream or live to tape, is um, is is a type of creation that is unlike sitting in a bar with your friends or being alone in front of your computer writing. Uh, and uh, you know, could perfection be obtained? Could you know? Could you? Could I? Could any of us um, go through something that we have done and say, Ah, I wish I had said that better. Oh, I wish I'd <clears throat> remembered. I mean, any talk anyone's ever given, right? Like, ah, oh, I forgot to do these two things, yep, right? I do it every time. Every time, right? No matter how good your visuals are that are supposed to prompt you, nope, you skip right over something like some line that you had, like you just, you miss it, right? So um, it's it's very easy to be an armchair critic, but more to the point, it's very, it's much easier. It's always easier to critique than to create, always. And I think this is actually part of what went wrong um, in academia as well, which was the sort of the elevation in all of these new pseudo fields, plus the takeover of most of the social sciences and many of the humanities as well, of criticism. And you know, criticism is honorable and amazing, and in a in a great art class is absolutely necessary. And you need to expose your ideas scientifically to criticism of, of, you know, of yourself, of your peers, of your enemies, everyone, right? But this idea of critique as the thing that is done, like literary theory is often just critique as opposed to generating new. And the fact is that's lazy and that's easy by comparison. And, and that's what we've got here. There's a whole lot of critique and, um, and you know, no ability necessarily to be like, oh, let, let, let me do it. Let me take an hour with Tucker and see how I could do it. Like, okay, that's not actually on offer. But the fact is, this isn't a job that you know. And, uh, and critique is, is, is easy. Like, slinging mud is easy. Well, I'm going to separate two things. And I'm going to go back to an analogy we've used before. In ecology, ecology is a very broken field, but it's got a few uh, useful tools. One of them is the distinction between what's called exploitation competition and interference competition. Exploitation competition, if you imagine that there are, if you're a hummingbird and there are flowers that are putting out nectar, then you are in competition with everything else that wants that nectar. And by exploiting the resource, you leave less of it for others, but you're not 
damaging others so that they can't get to the resource, right? You are competing by exploiting the resource at a higher rate than they are. I think critique in this context, if somebody is angry at me because of something I've said, they want to put out stuff that shows why I've got it wrong, right? Then the point is there's a space of attention of thoughts and they may very well eclipse me and that's to the good. And then my next move is I see this thing and I think, you know, actually, yeah, they have a point there. Actually, they don't have a point here. I may respond to that thing. That makes us all stronger. And what it does that's most important is it makes us most likely to succeed in the important goal, which is defeating whatever it is that's moving through the World Health Organization, claiming that our surrender of our sovereignty is our own goddamn fault. So if you want to engage in competitive behavior and critique is part of that, by all means, do it and do it well. The better you do it, the better off we are. On the other hand, if what you're going to do is go after people who are trying to do the right thing, people who are behaving in an honorable fashion, doing the best they can, trying to make things better for us, you are part of the problem. And that's interference competition, right? That's poisoning the soil so your competitors can't grow. That is not elevating anybody. And what does it do? It absolutely makes it more likely that the tyrants are going to do exactly the stuff that you don't want them to do, that you claim is motivating your anger at me. Um, so yep. I should say we haven't mentioned uh, lockdown specifically yet. The reason the most concentrated criticism that I am getting is on my position relative to lockdowns. And um, I feel stuck in this case because I know what my position is and I know why it is my position. My position has changed several times about lockdowns. I can articulate what it is today, but the last thing I want to do, what I, you know, if there's anybody who has had the advanced training course in facing angry, confused mobs, it's me. I know that if I do what these people want, right, if I give them what they want, they will be enraged even further, right? I'd make more demands, and at some point you will stop meeting the demands. And you will never apologize for that, right. which you did not do. And well, not only all didn't of these do. Things, I'm just saying in general, you will never apologize for anything that you did not do. Legitimate, honorable apologies need to remain legitimate and honorable. And therefore, you do not make false apologies. And a mob that is not apologized to when it demands one, that uh, makes demands uh, that you accede to, and then makes more demands that you stop acceding to because you realize it's an infinite process and you can never win, only, as you say, becomes more enraged. I would just add one thing to that, mm -hmm. which is you don't apologize for stuff you didn't do, and you correct errors. If the errors were honestly made, you don't apologize for errors. You just right. say, I got it wrong, and now I've, this is my position. And so the demand for apology is out of place in the first place because right. it presumes things about motive that are just simply false, right? It, mm -hmm. It's the wrong paradigm. Um, so do you want to... Yeah. Um, it just occurred to me when we were talking today, actually, <clears throat> excuse me, um, that what, 11, 10 and a half months ago, excuse me, <clears throat> I was, I don't remember actually what prompted exactly this piece in natural selection. So you can show my screen here. Um, but I wrote a piece that was not exhaustive at all, but basically laying out the points um, that we have been making on COVID, on Dark Horse, uh, 
from from the beginning and a few of you know a, a few errors especially early on and a, a bunch of not errors in which we were right we were early we lost you know we lost a lot all uh, right we were demonetized and and lost um <clears throat> lost people and such um but demonetize i would i would point out it's become ever clearer the more uh time has passed our channel was skyrocketing in terms of uh subscriptions at the point we were demonetized that stopped instantly yep so not so only not, not only would we have easily had uh financial independence very quickly uh with that rate of growth but the rate of growth was itself growing um well, i mean with and, the money that was coming in and the rate of growth was was high and the capping of the yep. size of the channel has effects on all kinds of things because sure. when you publish a book when you try to get advertisers to sign on everything is scaled to how big is your reach so um so these things matter so yes we paid a high price but every so often and this week it's uh your interview with tiger carlson um people decide that becoming enraged is the thing to do um and so i wrote this apparently with the bad guys or don't ask permission to speak. And it got a lot of, a lot of positive engagement. Um, and I just, well, I'll read the first couple of paragraphs here. Were you silent on the question of viral origins before Jon Stewart and the United States Department of Energy told you that you were allowed to think certain thoughts? Those thoughts were dubbed conspiratorial and dangerous and uncareful until they weren't. Oh, maybe it did come from a lab after all. Did it take Woody Harrelson on Saturday Night Live to point out to you that pharmaceutical companies are acting as drug cartels and that the media is in their sway? Financial incentives drive, drive success in business, and Pfizer is nothing if not successful these days. Huh. Maybe Pfizer wasn't the white knight we were told it was. These last three years, too many of us have let social coercion and fear drive what we say out loud and even what we think. We've outsourced our thinking to self-described experts, credentialed, well-dressed, well-spoken experts who have been wrong, disastrously, disastrously so over and over and over again. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me three times, four times, 50 times, 100, what the hell? Shame on all of us who continue to fall for these games. Uh... I'll read, I'll read a little bit more here, actually. We need to be suspect of any conclusion that arrives fully formed, especially if no questions are allowed. In response to pronouncements from the government and health agencies, get in the habit of saying, I'm not sure about that. It can open your mind. And once your mind is open, all manner of wonderful things can happen. It may not keep you in good stead with your social group, though. My husband, Brett Weinstein, and I have said a lot of things these last three years that have angered people. Before Jon Stewart or the Department of Energy or Woody Harrelson had said anything publicly, we were publicly discussing, using the scientific tools at our disposal, the very real possibilities that SARS-CoV-2 was the product of gain-of-function research, and while its foundations were borrowed from a bat, the final product came from a lab. The vaccines that were developed at record speed and presented as the one and only solution to the problem of the pandemic, specifically the mRNA products, are neither safe nor effective. Many alternative treatments for COVID exist, including but not limited to repurposed drugs with extensive safety records that are long out of patent, such as ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. For this, we have been vilified. So let me just say, um, and there's more, um, I have a long bullet list of various of our positions uh, with links to where we first talked about them as far as I can find in our, in our long list of um, Dark Horse episodes um, since... May of 2020, 
Here are a few of the other things that Brett and I have given voice to these last three years. Conclusions that we came to through observation, checking of our assumptions, analysis, and reanalysis. Be careful, though. Consider these ideas, and who knows what could happen. And I begin with what I see as two of our big mistakes. Early in the pandemic, we thought that masks were broadly effective. We were wrong. First, we spoke about the importance of masks, and as new evidence came in, our position changed. We spoke about that, too. We also thought that short, early, and strong lockdowns had a chance of stopping the spread of SARS-CoV-2. We were wrong about that. I don't think lockdowns could have worked, in part because I don't think sufficient worldwide compliance was possible to stop the spread. And as much as I am disappointed to have, handed, to have landed here, I no longer trust my government to borrow any of my freedoms. So it goes on and on and on. Um, so maybe this is the point to talk about uh, what my current position is on lockdowns and uh, what I regret and what I don't regret. Good. My current position, first of all, I do not believe that given what SARS-CoV-2 is, that there was any potential to control, certainly not control spread. And my focus has been actually driving the pathogen to extinction. So the reason that I will not just simply say lockdowns could never conceivably work under any circumstances against any pathogen is that there, remember, I'm a biologist. Here's what I'm focused on. A novel pathogen that were to jump by human meddling or some other mechanism into the human population from some animal source that therefore starts out at uh, some low level but has significant virulence. So I'm just painting a scenario here. Were there to be a novel pathogen that leapt into people but had not yet become endemic to humanity, if one could drive it to extinction in that early phase, the value to humanity would be incalculably large. And I choose that, that phrasing very carefully. The reason that it would be incalculably large is that the alternative of allowing it to run its course and become endemic is for it to continue to inflict costs on humans for as long as humans continue to exist. So there is a value to taking a pathogen that there is still the potential to drive it extinct and doing so rather than running out the clock and letting it become endemic. So you can disagree with me that that's something to be worth focusing on, but you can't disagree with me that if one had the ability to drive a new human pathogen to extinction, that the value of doing so would be very high and would be worth a significant, small, a significant but small cost. And that is why I have said short, intense lockdowns. However, so there's that. I do not believe there is a government on earth today, at least not at any large scale, whether a city government could have some uh, alternative scenario, I don't know. But the idea that there's a national government or an international body on earth today that could be trusted with this kind of power is preposterous, nor do I expect to live to see a government worthy of trust in this regard. So going forward, I would oppose any lockdown because I regard the people who would be issuing uh, such an order to be illegitimate and very likely up to no good. But um, the point is, when I have presented this idea, 
I have said it as a brief, intense lockdown accompanied by high quality testing. And the idea is in this scenario, a pathogen that spread and burned itself out in some short period of time and where in those rare cases where for some reason it was able to bounce around for long enough to escape that period of weeks, you would be able to find it with the testing that would allow in principle some uh, properly organized body to figure out how to drive a pathogen to extinction and benefit humanity tremendously. Again, I would oppose any lockdown that came uh, with from normal Earth governments at the moment, but I do not rule out the possibility that in the future you could face a pathogen that it would be worth doing. What's more, I would point this out. The reason, so the folks who are attacking me have been very focused on the idea that I, in some hypothetical scenario, favor something like an intense lockdown. And they've been very avoidant of why that is paired with short duration. In other words, if you're looking to paint me as a villain, you would focus on the one thing and you would ignore the other, which they have done. They have also ignored the fact that I've said that absent good testing, this would be pointless. I'm not arguing that this is a useful way to control the spread of a pathogen. I'm arguing that in the brief period before something becomes endemic, that it could be used to drive a pathogen to extinction and that the disproportionate value of preventing a pathogen from becoming endemic is of a different sort. And I would argue that reasonable people all understand that although civil liberties are sacrosanct and should be, that there are circumstances in which you make a compromise. So for example, no reasonable person would argue that if you have an active shooter and they are wandering through a school, that locking down the population of that school is a violation of their civil liberties that we ought to complain about, right? Giving the police the ability to have access to the shooter and keeping people safe from the shooter is a perfectly reasonable uh, reason to have a lockdown. Is it an abridgment of people's civil liberties? You bet it is, but we all understand why, right? Um, likewise, if you presumably had somebody, you know, if somebody released smallpox from one of the places where it is maintained uh, under lock and key, and some person had smallpox and they were wandering around a hospital, would it make sense to lock down the population of the hospital so that they didn't contact the person with smallpox? Yes, it would. So the only reason I'm pointing this out is that even though civil liberties are sacrosanct, we can all understand that there are circumstances in which it makes sense to um, prioritize something else briefly. And that is an extension of the argument that I've been making. That said, I'm not favoring lockdowns. I do not believe they were ever appropriate for SARS-CoV-2, nor was the rationale that we were given for those lockdowns the one that I'm pointing to. The rationale we were given was some nonsense about flattening the curve and preventing the hospitals from being flooded, which was apparently bullshit from the get-go. The hospitals were largely empty. So I'm not defending anything like lockdowns that we had, and I'm not advocating that we should leave the door open to them in the future because there's no government that could be trusted with it. But is there a reason to leave the concept open for some future scenario that we cannot imagine? Yes, there is. Good. Okay. Um, oh, to your point about um, how much of this is organic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I do think we need to ask this question. Even the people who are actually dissidents and who are actually enraged of their own accord, they have to ask themselves, how much are they being induced to, to see a world that isn't in yes. order to keep us back on our heels or whatever it is? And I, w I wanted to point to a couple things. And, One, it's, and it's just, it's more, it's more energizing when you feel like you've got a lot of people who are of the same mind. And oh, this is, it's why mobs are what they are. Right. And I guess something I didn't say when you first introduced the idea that this, um, when you were first talking about the nature of this mob, is there's something, mob mentality is uh, low quality. It's mm -hmm. amygdala driven, right? Yeah. It's not your highest mental centers um, doing their best to figure out what's going on. It's you de-individuating and becoming part of some thing, and it's not a, a thinking, careful thing, right? But so if you felt small before, and now you don't feel small, and that is a source of power for people. Right. They are tapping into a feeling of a source of power where all of these aggrieved people have pointed at the same enemy, and ironically enough, that enemy is me, right? Now, uh, a friend pointed out the relevance of the work of Rene Girard to this situation, which I'm surprised I forgot to think of myself. But Rene Girard um, was a philosophical thinker who generated a, uh, a model, uh, a hypothesis about scapegoating that effectively mm. one of the galvanizing forces in any group is the identification of a scapegoat and the targeting of them. And this he uh, describes as basically the nucleating event that causes witch hunting. Right. Yeah. Scapegoat um, or witch, either way. Yeah. Yep. But anyway, so it's very odd and certainly ironic that I would be the target of these people's ire, but it's not that surprising that they would find some target. And you've been in the witch seat before. <laughs> uh, it's it's a place I seem to find myself. And, and uh, mm -hmm. I will remind people um, that two days, I believe, before Evergreen melted down, I put on the board for my students a model of witch hunting. Mm -hmm. um, if I remember it correctly, it was in every such scenario, there are a tiny number of people who will instigate a witch hunt. There are a fair number of people who will participate in a witch hunt. There are a large number of people who will say nothing. And there are a tiny number of people who will oppose a witch hunt. Those are the witches. Yep. Um, so anyway, it's, there is a reason that I end up in this situation, and um, I guess I'm kind of proud of it. But let's, uh, you want to play that little video clip? So let me just say that this is some, I guess, podcaster, never heard of him, who showed up and his stuff started being circulated against between the people who were going after me. And I think it, it's just fascinating to me what it is. So, Yeah. For today, lastly, um, we're going to get into a little bit of uh, contentious territory here. Um, I have been openly critical of podcaster Brett Weinstein. Uh, I used to watch Brett's show. A lot of y'all might remember in the first episode of, of this podcast, um, I specifically called out Brett for his views espousing uh, a, ge a genetic 
genetic Jewish supremacy, let's say, uh, this idea that that the Jewish people are genetically superior to everyone else and more in inherently more intelligent than everyone else. Um, and I've also been super uh, vocal about my, you know, um, my issues with his coverage of the COVID re response. And it seems like some people are starting to catch up with that. Um, this account on Twitter, uh, Jessica Hockett, uh, I, I don't know her. Um, I don't know, you know, I don't know who she is or whatever, but um, she recently posted this clip of Brett on somebody's show. Uh, I guess this is Michael Schellenberger, um, who was a reporter. So here's what's interesting. Extraordinary. Yeah. He says that he's been critical of me for arguing that uh, Jews are genetically superior. Now, I know that I have never said this because I know that I believe it's not true, which is something I have said. And this and is not something about which you've changed your mind. No, this is, some, this is something <laughs> this is I have something been arguing. I've always known. I have been arguing this from long before I was in the public eye, that the unlikeliness of genetic superiority is, I believe, a biologically important argument. And that, anyway, so I don't know where he gets this or if, it's organic at all. I know it's inflammatory. It's super inflammatory. And I mean, I, you just have to wonder, you know, do they think you're someone else? Are they just making it up out of whole cloth? Well, and you know, there, there's going to be things, I mean, this is, that's too absurd, right? I mean, you, you, this is actually a topic on which you have talked many, many times and have been very clear every time. And there's just no ambiguity. There are others who are ambiguous because maybe they do actually have cryptic beliefs they don't really feel like saying yet, and uh, but that's not you. But the, it does reveal, though, how many such points could be made where you're like, God, I don't know, I don't think that, but I do have more nuance than you might think, and oh gosh, what did they, what do they think I said? Like you, 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 they could cause a person to spin. Not this one because this is too obviously wrong, right? But there are so many topics on which you can get people spun up. Yeah, but this one, at this moment in history, this one is particularly useful, right? right? Yeah. You have a resurgence in anti-Semitism. You have a yep. uh, very dangerous situation in the Middle East continuing to unfold. And so just sort of introducing the idea that I harbor this belief and that he's been critical of me. So at the very best, he is incredibly incredibly sloppy and doesn't know what he's talking about and uh, has misunderstood something about my belief or who I am or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but let's just say it doesn't really matter because nobody checked him. Nobody asked him for receipts on that. Right. It was just taken to be, oh, yeah, Brett sucks. Yeah, here's another one of the things he, he's terrible about, right? Yep. Okay. Then... He doesn't even know enough about what he's talking about to recognize that that's my podcast, not Schellenberger's podcast. So mm -hmm. he's completely misunderstood the context. It's as if Schellenberger is asking me about this. No, I sat down with Schellenberger and had this conversation. So anyway, it's extremely yeah. floppy. And this yeah, you're, you're in a space that's not your own, but that's just because you were traveling. But it's, yeah, it's Dark Horse. Yeah. yeah. But the sloppiness is extreme. And, and again, 
a, a mob is not a careful thinking entity. It mm -hmm. is a verificationist entity. It is an right. overfitting engine, right? It is looking for confirmation of the villainy of the thing it's targeted at. It's not looking for disconfirming evidence that would cause, you know, how often in this circumstance or any of these witch hunts does somebody say, oh, wait a minute, that's a piece of evidence I didn't know about. Maybe I shouldn't be in this mob at all. I'll be over there while you guys are witch hunting because I now know something is off, right? That's not one of the features of these mobs. But here's the thing. Even in an actual mob, you were able to reach some people. And so the asynchronous virtual nature of an online mob is even harder to dissuade, is even harder to dismantle. Because when the actual mob came for you, you reached people. And you, you, you ended up talking to people and they ended up having thoughts and questions that they never imagined that they would have. It was real time, you were face to face, and they were able to see and perceive through all of the things we don't have language for, that you were actually willing and interested in engaging them and that what they were bringing to you as their claims against you were actually surprising to you, that these were not true. Right? The things that they said were true of you were not true, and you were surprised that anyone thought that, and that that actually goes a ways, right? There's no way to do that when there's a bunch of, a bunch of people putting out content constantly that's just full of, and again, we have no idea. Is it lies? Is it intentional? It's wrong. Either way, it's wrong. But it's much, much harder to actually take apart a mob when it is both asynchronous and there is no, it's not meat space, right? There's, there's, there's no actual ability to say, oh, you're a real person and I can actually distinguish things that you're saying. It's only language. Like, okay, so it's video, so we get to see how you're moving a little bit, but there's so much less. There's so much less of what the actual signal of human engagement is than when you are in person. Uh, that's absolutely correct. Um, there's also uh, one of the tough things about our position is that we have spent so much time exploring our understanding of things and having that understanding evolve in real time uh, that, you know, it's impossible to know where the things we've said are, when they were said, and all this. And actually somebody, Zach, could you put up the tweet? Somebody was responding and found some timestamps in a June of 2020 uh, Rogan discussion um, that I did. So here, um, Somebody came to my defense and pointed out that in June of 2020, uh, in, on the JRE podcast, at 1.5408, I said, in my opinion, we should have locked down severely for six weeks or something, and then the quote continues. And then at 2.02.20, I said, we should be outdoors. We should not be locking down those environments at all. So if you were paying this much attention then you understood that there was a deeper model at work. And in fact, you know, you and I never get credit for this. But one of, I think, the stronger early things that you and I did was come up with a model of um, 
the effective volume of a space as it affected transmissibility. And the point was outdoor spaces, as much as it is surprising and conspicuous, outdoor spaces were effectively completely incapable of allowing the virus to transmit. Yep. And therefore, the locking of them down was an absurdity. And you and I were shouting from the rooftops, there's no way you should be locking down beaches and state parks. You should be encouraging people to go there. What's more, in our, our book, the uh, first draft of it was finished as we emerged from the jungle, having completed that draft. And No, but a couple months later. It, as, as lockdowns were hitting, um, the first draft was being submitted in March of 2020. Okay. The um, addendum that was written after we emerged from the jungle, when we heard about COVID for the first time. So you and I uh, went to Ecuador and worked on the book. And when we emerged, we learned about what was then called novel coronavirus. So the point is the book was written without knowledge of the fact that there was going to be this pseudo emergency or whatever. We added something to the book. And what we added was a section which we have covered here on Dark Horse. And what it says is, as a thought experiment, if human beings could have agreed to stay outdoors for two weeks, we could have driven SARS-CoV-2 from the face of the earth because it can't apparently transmit outdoors. Now, I worried a lot when we used to talk about uh, the fact that it did not appear to transmit outside that evolutionarily it would learn that trick sooner or later mm -hmm. you know i don't know if it has um there is the weird fact of deer having shown uh, a, a high degree of infection i've never understood this piece of evidence but and it's been very hard to track to what degree they are made ill like i don't i don't I don't trust those data. There's something odd about it, mm -hmm. that a virus that doesn't transmit between people outdoors should have reached uh, a high level of penetrance in a wild creature. Yeah. When did that happen? So anyway, we don't know what that means. But but the point is, if your point is, oh, uh, Brett or Brett and Heather are pro-lockdown, when you and I were shouting about the fact that we were being driven indoors, which is where the virus transmits, and forbidden to go outdoors, and that that was an absurdity at every level, right? You're not seeing the full picture. The mob should be puzzling over the fact that it's got some evidence. Yes, I have said that uh, there are circumstances in which a lockdown could make sense, but then we've also said a bunch of things that are completely inconsistent. And what's more, the interview in question is targeted at derailing the tyrannical capacity of the World Health Organization to create global lockdowns. So what the hell, people? Wake up. Fair enough. Um... I'm remembering, I, I was just looking through my spreadsheet of, of our episodes where I don't, you know, I don't have timestamps, but I have, I have notes. I can't remember. I think it was April of 2020, may have been May, but I think it was April, um, in which one of the papers that I had run across, um, you know, I, all the research coming out of China at that point, I now don't know what, what all to make of it, but this paper seemed particularly well done and, uh, it, it purported to have looked at some staggeringly large number of cases of COVID and um, tracked basically where uh, where the point of transmission was. 
And there was one and only one case uh, which could be uh, could be attributed to an outdoor transmission. And it was a guy who was extremely sick, hacking, 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 right up next to his neighbor in some contentious conversation. Maybe I've made up contentious, but in some conversation that went on for a long time in which he's up close and he's hacking. And um, and that's the only one. And yeah. so that, that was, you know, for me, um, the moment I remember going like, okay. And yet at the same time, they're putting danger tape up on children's playgrounds. Yeah. They've... They've closed down the schools, they've closed down work, and they're locking families up alone together and not giving the children anything to do. And, you know, this is, again, one of these bullet points in this natural selections piece. Keeping people inside was a huge error. Closing parks and beaches, forests and playgrounds was a mistake. Everyone should have been getting outside as much as possible, moving their bodies with enthusiasm and abandon, breathing in the air, letting the sun shine down upon their bare skin for every reason for, for vitamin every D reason reasons, and the next one is vitamin psychological D health reasons right right so um the yeah i mean i i hate feeling defensive about this point but did we make errors yes have we been good about correcting them yes are we lockdown fanatics no <laughs> um and it it is uh, very troubling that this should now be caricatured um, by the very people who ought to be pointed at the same enemy, which is the World Health Organization and whatever is driving it to install these totalitarian measures in advance of some yet-to-be-declared emergency. That's the obvious enemy. And when people say, what team are you talking about? Um, I'm talking about whoever is willing to fight that thing. And if you want to fight independently, go for it. If you want to interact with other people who are fighting it, that's even better. But don't tear people down who are actually earnestly trying to fend this off before it is sprung on us in some future context. Um, yeah, maybe I'll just leave it there. There's lots of other stuff we could show, but I think, I think we've more or less covered it. Um, the infighting is destructive. I think it was valuable to have seen it in this circumstance where uh, we are not in the middle of an unfolding emergency. Let's uh, purge this instinct and get back to fighting the real enemy as soon as possible. Should we talk about fat? Of course. Yeah. Okay. Um, show my screen here for a second here, Zach. Uh, I came across this article, and I think I was pointed to it on Twitter, and I don't remember uh, exactly the source. I apologize. Editorial on nutrition. Chronic non-communicable disease risks presented by lipid oxidation products in fried foods. So we're going to explain this. I'm not. There's a lot of technical stuff here that I'm not going to go into, but um, I will say this is published in... Uh, unexpectedly, the Hepatobiliary Surgery and Nutrition, the Journal of Hepatobiliary Surgery and Nutrition, uh, and it's an editorial. So already we're in some strange territory. And one of the things that suggests to me is, you know, either these people are, you know, they have nothing to offer and they've just managed to get some fringe journal to publish some thoughts on something because there's lots of that that happens. Or um, they've got a very important point to make 
and they've been trying to make it through the normal channels and no one is listening and so they're trying some new stuff and that is what I've come to understand about these authors who have been publishing for decades since the mid-90s on exactly this and again it's chronic non-communicable disease risks presented by lipid oxidation products in fried foods so the particular the particular thing that they're talking about is the risks of frying okay not just eating fat cold um, but what happens to various types of fats when you fry them and specifically when you fry them um, over extended periods of time as we know that for instance uh, commercial kitchens like fast food um, will use the same uh, the fryer vat vat yeah vat of fat for um gosh i don't even know probably days weeks i hope one, not one week, one week okay so um you know is there is there a difference between fresh fat and old fat is there a difference between different kinds of fat in terms of what kinds of products they produce in the foods that you are frying and that then you are then eating before and so these authors again have been writing about this have been doing research they are they are academic researchers uh since the 90s and no one appears to be listening and so they've they've written this this piece um but first maybe a little background on types of fat uh because it, it's oh careful I, I need my screen here um uh let's see what did i want to show okay um before you know, don't don't show my screen here um we're talking they're talking about saturated fats unsaturated fats and uh somehow the world has already caught into the fact that trans fats aren't good for you so they're not even they're not even looking at trans fats particularly but um there are four basic and and, and specifically they're talking about fatty acids which, which i'm just shortening to fats and so the acronyms that you'll see in this paper which i'll link uh, and in, in general are um, saturated fatty acids, unsaturated fatty acids, of which there are two types, monounsaturated fatty acids and polyunsaturated fatty acids, and then trans, trans fats, trans fatty acids. Uh, and basically the saturated fatty acids are, are typically things like, um, you know, fats that have a high degree of saturated fat um, are solid at room temperature and they come from animals. Things like butter and taro and taro, tallow and lard and such. Um, and unsaturated fats, monounsaturated fats, uh, fats that are high in monounsaturated fats tend to be things like olive oil uh, and uh, macadamia oil and, um, and others. And then polyunsaturated fats are the, are the seed oils, basically. Uh, and again, all of these fats have all of these types of fatty acids in them, um, but the ratios are very different between the types of fats. So, um, you know, anything that you, when people say vegetable oil, what they actually mean is seed oil, and that's like canola oil and safflower and sunflower and grapeseed, and, or grapeseed and canola are the same thing, I think. Is that right? Um, <clears throat> no, that is different. That's different. Um, and, then, and then trans fats don't occur in nature. Basically, that's something that we've created, and it's stuff like um, shortening. Um, that is also solid at room temperature, and it was created probably because people like their butter and their bacon fat, and um, and they wanted something spreadable that felt like butter that they could use. So, I don't think you've said saturated with what. It's, so we're about okay. We're we're about to go there. Um, 
I wish I had a beautiful like molecular biology or, or nutrition uh, biology <clears throat> textbook version. Um, I don't, but what I do have is a screenshot from a Khan Academy course, and I'll actually link the Khan Academy. Um, just it's like eight minutes, and if it's it's beautiful. And we're not going to show that here, but this eight minute Khan Academy lecture on on the difference between fats is great. And I'll just do a super brief version here. Here's the screenshot um, from Khan Academy in which uh, the, the guy has um, shown saturated fats, monounsaturated fats, polyunsaturated fats, and trans fats. So um, this is basically OCHEM shorthand in which these yellow yellow things are carbon chains. Um, carbon always makes four bonds, uh, and when it's singly bonded to other carbons, it has two other positions um, to, to bond to, and a fully saturated fat has no double bonds um, with carbon. There's no, there's no places where carbon is double bonded, like, um, like over there, where you've got two lines. Um, they're all single lines, and that means that it, every, every carbon is bonded to a carbon to the left, a carbon to the right, and then two hydrogens, because hydrogen is what um, is sort of the, the default position. And then to be a saturated fat, it also, um, and to be a, a fatty acid, it also needs to have some kind of, one of one of these oxygen-based groups as well. We're not going to go into that. But a saturated fat, therefore, is basically lines of, of carbons um, that are singly bonded to other carbons uh, and have are full of as many hydrogens as they could possibly have. That's what it's saturated with. It's saturated with hydrogen. And so they're, they're um, linear, and that's... Um, this is this is too simplistic, but it's part of why a saturated fat is going to be solid at room temperature is that you basically jam a bunch of them in together. That's oh. a pack in a way that uh, leaves them leaves the molecules stable with respect to each other rather than sliding around as they would in a liquid. Exactly. So a unsaturated fat is one in which at least one. In a monounsaturated fat, it's one. In a polyunsaturated fat, it's more than one. At least one of the carbons is doubly covalently bonded um, to, to each other. And that means that, that a carbon that has at one side a single bonded carbon to it and another side a double bonded carbon has only one more position that it has available. Uh, and that's going to be a hydrogen right there. But that means that there is, for each, for each double bonded carbon, in a uh, unsaturated fat, there are two fewer hydrogens than there would be if that was a single bond. Maybe this doesn't matter at all. That's presumably we could if they were if they were acting in 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 honesty and good faith and actually trying to figure out what was good for humans. That's maybe what the early food scientists thought. Maybe it's um, maybe it's not a problem at all. And in fact, what we still have. Um, in in nutrition science today is being told that unsaturated fats are way better for you, certainly than trans fats, but even than saturated fats. So um, that's a monounsaturated fat, and you can see it's got this little kink in it. It's got a bend because uh, when you have a double bonded uh, carbon, it causes the, the chain to kink, and it's just got one kink in it for a monounsaturated fat. It's got multiple kinks in it for a polyunsaturated fat, and you can see the more... The more poly it is, the more of these double carbon bonds there are, the more kinks, and therefore the more uh, voluminous this is going to be, and the less tightly packed you're going to be, and the more likely you are to be liquid at room temperature. Uh, so, and again, saturated fats like butter and tallow and lard, unsaturated fats, um, things like olive oil and polyunsaturated fats, seed oils. And then trans fats 
um, are, and this would just include this because it's included on this screenshot here, um, in, and this is indeed the origin of um, over in gender ideology land, cis and trans language, um, when you have a normal, you know, what tends to occur in nature, a double bond of the carbon, um, the hydrogens are coming off the same side and the, the rest of the carbon chain is coming off the same side. But you can in the lab switch that up and have uh, the carbon chain come off of, uh, say, the top and then it continues off the bottom. And that's called trans and that's why these are called trans fats. But what that does is produce whenever you have these double carbon uh, bonds, yes, you don't have as many hydrogens as you should if you were fully saturated, um, but you don't have a kink in the chain either. And so you end up with these relatively straight, relatively linear molecules that can be packed together like Crisco. So that's sort of the very brief description of what the difference is, if I can have my screen back here, um, between um, saturated fats and unsaturated fats. And um, again, I, I did not go into the history. I don't know how it is that we came to understand that trans fats are bad for you. Because the point you and I are growing up, everyone was cooking with Crisco, right? Shortening was the thing. And you know, there were people like, I, I remember specifically my dad, it was like butter. That's the thing, we're eating butter, right? Um, but you know, tubs of margarine and, and Crisco, like this, this was, we were being told that this was good for us. And now somehow people know that's not true, but hold on people still are convinced that the unsaturated fats are better for you than the saturated fats because that's what we are being told by everything from the American Heart Association on down. The American Heart Association, which my understanding, I discovered this researching something a few weeks ago, yep. which was apparently created actually to legitimize uh, seed oils. Right. Um, and so and you, you've, got a, you've got a kind of a pattern of what always happens in this case. You've mm -hmm. got some sort of food that is natural with which our ancestors have an evolutionary history and therefore we tend to be pretty good at extracting the value out of it, breaking it down in a way that doesn't make it toxic, whatever whatever it is. It has some form factor, yeah. right? Butter fat. And then you have an industry that wants to deliver a product and it has laboratories that are capable of addressing issues like, um, you know, you've extracted some plant oils, you know, corn oil, and you want to deliver it to people who are eager for butter, but they're not really eager to pour corn oil on what they're doing. So it needs to take on a butter form factor. And so you can hydrogenate it and you can get the form factor of butter in something that the plant created as a liquid and to begin that though i'm sorry if i missed it but you have to have created skepticism of butter right otherwise people just keep eating butter right so this is really uh, one of the things i described in that tucker interview was the game of pharma which we have yep. talked about on dark horse right there is a nutritional game that is exactly parallel yeah and older something that would be profitable has to demonize some other thing. It has to demonize its competitor. Oh, that's not safe at all, right? Mm -hmm. Hydroxychloroquine's not safe. And you know what else isn't safe? Butter, right? <laughs> yep. And so you got to demonize some product. And oh my God, that's causing heart attacks. You know what you really need? You need some butter form factor bread spread that uh, is made from corn oil 
right? Because they want to, they have an easy time growing corn, the profitability is high. And so what they've got to do is turn it into a butter-like substance. How do you do that? You throw hydrogens at it. That's wonderful, except it's not yellow. So you can add some coloring to make it yellow. Now it's very butter-like. Now you need a advertising campaign. Ask your doctor if margarine is right for you. And uh, here we have it. Yeah. This is a 1950s ad for margarine that I used to use when I taught about these things. The smoothest spread to put on bread. You like margarine. Of course you do. It's good to eat, good for you, and good for your overworked food budget. And you like margarine yellow, but you get margarine white. Why? Because of outworn laws that place a federal tax of 10 cents per pound on yellow margarine. Actually, if the law would allow it, you could buy yellow margarine at no extra cost. No wonder people are riled up, stirred up. Sorry, it's tiny. Fortunately, wow, I gotta make this a little bit bigger. Um, oh, fortunately, far-seeing men in Congress are working to see that you get margarine yellow the way you want it. Give them your wholehearted support. Remember, the voice of the people is the voice of the lawmaker. Fight for the right to yellow margarine. You've got to fight for your right to yellow <laughs> margarine. Um, right. So That's an actual ad, guys. That's an actual ad from the 1950s. An from, actual... Wait, from the National Association of Margarine Manufacturers. Of course it is. So here's the thing. You and I grew up in the 70s and 80s yep. in households that had been a victim of the margarine psyop. Um, <laughs> Yep. To, to a greater and lesser degree of effectiveness. I would say my family was fully hoodwinked. Your father wasn't buying any of that crap because he was a down-to-earth guy who grew up on a farm. And I think growing up on a farm was the big, was the big thing. Right. But anyway, look, here's, the, here's the, where the rubber meets the road on this. Yep. It is, you and I have studied biology. We have arrived at a conclusion about what we call hypernovelty. That's largely the subject matter of our book. There is no way that the process, the game of big nutrition, where they identify a historical food, they demonize it, they have a way of producing something that's like it that will have a much higher profit margin, they create it in the lab, they adjust it, and then they run a psyop to get people to accept it. There is no way that that ends up healthy, right? Right. That ends up causing health problems. How many people have died of uh, pathologies that are downstream of uh, hydrogenated plant oils? It's a huge number. We'll never know, but it's a huge number. And the point is it was all per perfectly predictable. Right. Uh, this article has nothing to do with that. This is not hydrogenated plant oils we're talking this, about here. Uh, this is what I was raising my hand about a little bit ago. Mm -hmm. uh, I was confused because I looked up the ingredients in Crisco vegetable shortening and margarine. Yeah. It is hydrogenated. Yes, products, it is. And that's not what this article is about. Okay. Right. So the, this article is not about trans fats. Um, this is about unsaturated fats versus saturated fats and specifically saturated fats versus monounsaturated fats versus polyunsaturated fats, again with the recognition that, um, so polyunsaturated fats are 
they derive from a plant, but they are really basically not possible to be pressed without modern technology. And part of what is wrong with the way that most of these polyunsaturated fats um, are produced is the detergents and such that are that are used to extract them, which is something that Zach has actually um, informed us of quite a bit. Um, all of these fats, everything from butter to safflower oil, has some saturated fat, some monounsaturated fat, and some polyunsaturated fat, <clears throat> but it's the ratio that matters. And so we can talk about butter basically being a saturated fat because it mostly is, okay? So um, I'm gonna have you first just show the figure, um, for the original figure here from, from the paper, and it's hard to interpret. It's typical sort of, um, you know, not very clearly labeled, unfortunately, uh, scientific. Uh, oh, that's, that happens. Um, um, scientific visualization. Um, and I'm not going to go into most of these details, but I do. I did prepare a better graphic based on the same thing. Um, but I just want to point out before I go on uh, that the two lines on each of these graphs are about... Um, the total saturated and alpha beta unsaturated aldehyde concentrations. So we're talking about toxic aldehydes um, that are being generated by the frying of these fats. Okay, so this is um, just a, a clearer version of same, and I'm about to tell you what um, uh, a little bit more. So figure one, the title is generation of cytotoxic and genotoxic. So that's cell killing and gene destroying aldehydic, those are aldehydes, it's a particular kind of toxic molecule, lipid oxidation products, that's just like all of the oxidation products that are generated in culinary frying oils, corn oil, sunflower oil, coconut oil, and butter were the four that they chose, subjected to laboratory simulated shallow frying episodes. So that seems, that seems very, like a lot of very fancy talk, um, but Basically, they start at time zero on the x-axis and go only through 100 minutes, which is a lot less time than you're going to get in, say, a fryer um, that is being used for a week solid before you throw out the, the fat. Yeah, this is the equivalent. They are testing effectively pan frying over a short period of time. Mm -hmm. Well, short, 100, 100 minutes isn't that short. Well, but um, compared but, to a week. Yep. Yeah. Um, and uh, and on, on the y-axis... Uh, you have these measures of toxicity. So I'm not, again, I'm not going to go into the chemistry of exactly what those, those measures are, but there, there's, there's these forms of aldehyde. And you can see just right off, right off the bat that corn oil and sunflower oil uh, have much higher rates of the production of these cytotoxic and genotoxic aldehydic lipid oxidation products uh, than do coconut oil or butter. And it's even worse than you think because check out the y-axis on these things and coconut oil and butter have y-axis that are twice that are half as short and so they actually had to extend the y-axis on the on the high saturated fat fats in order to get anything that was readable which wow. means that this is even worse than it looks like and just to um just to clarify so i keep on saying like saturated fats monounsaturated fats polyunsaturated fats these authors say you know what all unsaturated fats are not equal. The, the less saturation or the less unsaturation, the better. So monounsaturated is actually better than polyunsaturated fats. And here are their um, ratios of, of saturated fatty acids to monounsaturated fatty acids to polyunsaturated fatty acids in corn oil, 
62% polyunsaturated fats. In sunflower oil, 61% polyunsaturated fats, basically equivalent between corn oil and sunflower oil. In coconut oil, 91% saturated fat. Amazing. With 7% uh, monounsaturated and only 2% polyunsaturated. And butter, I'm a little confused about this and a little bit of digging. I, I couldn't figure out why the butter numbers don't add up to 100%. Uh, it's not 100% fat. Because it's not, oh, because it's protein. Protein, yeah. Because it's milk. Thank you. That's going to, that's going to be it. So I thought, I thought this was a, just about the fats, but that's got to be it that they're, that they're looking at the entire makeup of the butter. So of the portion, uh, yeah, given that butter isn't hundred percent fat, um, I guess I'm not going to be able to do the math in my head, but let's just say it's 50, of, of the fat, <laughs> no, of, of the entire bit of butter, 52% is, uh, is saturated fatty acids, 21% monounsaturated fatty acids and 3.5% polyunsaturated yeah, People fats. can't see the 3.5%, so it's oh, important okay. to highlight that. Yeah, so that's three, yeah. <laughs> that's polyunsaturated it. fats, 3% 3.5% in butter. Yeah, so that could that could look very misleading. Um, and so you, you indeed see, like coconut oil, I, I, I was surprised by the coconut oil to butter comparison, right? I, we, we cook with both. Um, I love butter. Uh, and I would have thought the coconut oil and butter were very similar to one another, just as corn oil and sunflower oil are with regard to their, um, their makeup of fats. And, uh, and, and no, actually coconut oil has way higher saturated fatty acid content. Um, and it generates far less cytotoxic and genotoxic lipid oxidation products when, when food is fried in it at these relatively short periods of time. So I, I know you said it, but can you describe what the two different lines are? It's a mess. Uh, so I, no, basically, if you want to give me my screen back for a second, Zach, so I can just make sure I go back to the right thing. Okay, you can read it now. Um, it's sigmoidal time dependence of mean plus or minus SEM, total saturated and alpha, B, alpha beta unsaturated aldehyde concentrations, red and blue, respectively. So, so total two different aldehydes. Yeah, that's it's, what it is. Okay. It's just it's it's just two different aldehydes, and um, you know there's a lot of all of these classes, and I did not go into the chemistry and figure out what all the differences are yeah. and why it is that you can divide them neatly into two classes. So um, that's why I did not I did not specify much uh, much there, um, and that's that's basically it. Um, you know this this paper actually I'll go back here. Um, They've got one remarkable quote in here. I got it. It should also be noted. Oh, so these are, I, I think they're going to be British authors. And so when they say chip, they mean uh, French fry. Uh, so it should also be noted that these estimated 154 gram potato French fry serving aldehyde contents. So this is in a small serving of French fries in the, in the typical oils that French fries are being fried in. 154 grams, not a large serving at all, are not dissimilar to those arising from the smoking of a daily allocation of 25 tobacco cigarettes, i.e. the alpha-beta unsaturated and saturated aldehydes, crotonaldehyde and N-hexanol, respectively. Wow. From less than a normal serving of like a McDonald's french fry thing. I don't know what units they come in, but... Uh... <laughs> what do you call that thing? <laughs> 
So envelope. So, well, I said a small serving of serving. I don't know. Basket. It's a, so, it's also, I'm pretty sure, obviously they say chips in Britain, but I'm pretty sure potato chip always means potato chip. No. Chi- sure? Yeah, in Britain they call chips crisps. No, I know that, but if you say potato chip, I the, think that's... If you read the rest of the paper, you'll see that they are consistent. Chips, like, okay. Um, now, it may, be, it may be that this one is actually about chips, but they've been talking about... Um, they they've been talking a lot about okay uh well i yeah I, actually i'm not sure in this case um so so can you go back to the graph this one uh or the the theirs their version which is this i just added some stuff yeah yeah um, either one okay that's clearer i think uh can you show it so one thing that is evident from this if we try to extrapolate from what they've shown us to deep frying yeah coconut oil and butter plateau yeah yeah you can actually you can you can it looks like coconut oil and butter i guess is it asymptote out and so what that means is you can keep on reusing since the x-axis is time what we're saying is that there's some level of these bad things that is produced, but it doesn't just keep going up indefinitely with more time. It actually, you know, 40 minutes in and you've gotten almost all the way there on butter and halfway there on coconut oil. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the numbers are tiny. So, I mean, again, the y-axis on coconut oil and butter is um, half as tall. Yep. And if you look at the corn oil and the sunflower, they do look like they're There's headed towards point. an asymptote. But the point is, uh, A, the absolute quantity has far exceeded coconut oil and butter at the 100 minutes, and it ain't stopping. Right. So what this implies is that there are a certain number of molecules that will be converted into these toxic aldehydes, and the time in which you fry them... Uh, adjusts how far along that process you are mm-hmm. um and so um from the point of view of either a what they're calling shallow frying mm-hmm. you know if you're going to shallow fry something in a pan at 25 minutes in coconut oil or butter you're at a tiny fraction of what will ultimately be produced that is harmful um so this reflects even better on those two things. And if you were to put them in a vat and do deep frying, the absolute quantity of these things will top out in butter and coconut oil early, presumably. And so in both cases, so I guess I guess my point is, how bad are these things for you? Well, if the aldehydes are the measure of how toxic these things are. Right. Which, is, short, which is the measure these guys are using. I have no idea if that's the right choice, but they're not good for it. It's a proxy. Yeah. Maybe there's other stuff that you right. could measure, but it's a proxy. Yep. And short duration frying in coconut oil or butter is actually uh, a, the tiniest fraction of what's going on in corn oil and sunflower oil, which are, of course, the industrial standard because yep. they can be sourced in huge quantities. Um, they're not seasonal at all, and they're cheap. Right. And so this is a classic case where the uh, the shiny reputation of vegetable oils uh, has created who knows how much health damage 
Um, and the thing, you know, the things that have been demonized like butter mm-hmm. um, were better for you all along. All along. Yep. They were better for you all along. And so, I mean, these authors are understandably, I, I, I feel like I read in, in this very staid, you know, standard academic prose, just like deep frustration at having not been listened to for years and years and years. And, uh, and I probably won't be able to find it here, but they say, um, <clears throat> somewhere in here, they, they talk about how despite the research that they and others have been presenting literally since the 1990s, health standards continue, like recommendations from public health organizations continue to recommend unsaturated fats over saturated fats. Yeah. They can they continue to say that. And you know, okay, heart.org, which is the official website of American Heart Association, at this point I expect that. And that's exactly what I found when I went there. But when I just tried doing a I don't I'm trying to figure out what I think, random Google search, pretending, you know, not to be me, not signed in as me and everything. Um, I could not find anything that suggested that this wasn't true. Right. All of the standard like Medline and like all of these standard sites uh, that I maybe used to think that might be a decent starting place. Yeah. Are exactly the wrong place to go ever. Well. Right. And so like really like the academic literature is, is full of garbage. But if you know how to read what you're reading, then you can at least find something. The. I believe that this is actually um, an impossible to imagine but very clear prediction of the game theory. Yeah. In other words, if you have a system that is open to financial corruption, how does that work in the case of uh, oils and fats and the scientific literature? Well, you would have industry groups fostering the production of results that favor their product. Mm-hmm. What force is it that is supposed to prevent your academic institutions from concluding the upside down thing if it's profitable for some industry that understands they have to uh, demonize the healthy stuff and uh, valorize the dangerous stuff? Of course this would happen. So. Yep. Um, what we live in is an upside down world in which the experts are always wrong because the whole point is the experts are a threat to an industry that would be profitable except for their expertise. So, right. of course, they've re-engineered the system to spit out uh, exactly what they want spit out. And this, this raises a question about the... We are told we are not supposed to give medical advice because we're not medical doctors, Right. On the other hand, what happens if the medical doctors are captured by a process that will cause them to give you advice that's bad for your health? Who is supposed to give you advice to ignore your doctor if your doctor has been captured by pharma or by big ag or uh, by Monsanto or whatever, right? So I'm not, I'm not claiming to know the answer to that question, but I am going to say it's a question. Because again and again and again, you're going to damage your health listening to the experts because you're told that nobody is allowed to critique them. And, um, you know, 
how many how many years of margarine did the world suffer through before it finally caught on to the fact that it was terrible for you? Yeah, and um, I don't know. I honestly do not know. And probably at this point, the work will never be done because, again, somehow we, we won on trans fats. But canola oil versus margarine. I don't have any reason to suspect that margarine is worse for you than canola oil. I'm sure that that is like, that is, is that malinformation? Because probably some branch of the government assures you that trans fat is bad for you and, um, and canola and unsaturated fats are good for you. And therefore, since I'm disagreeing with the government, I'm causing you to distrust the government. So that was probably malinformation, but I don't know. And I'd, I'd, I'd like to know actually, um, you know, so these, these people could, could do the work, like they could do that same work and also add a vat of shortening or margarine or something they're frying stuff in uh, and see what kind of aldehydes get produced. But of course, aldehyde might be the wrong, you know, it may be that trans fats produce some other kind of cytotoxic and genotoxic nastiness that just isn't measurable by the same proxies. Yeah, we're uh, living in a dark age that has been created so that people can continue to sell us stuff that's terrible. Indeed. But um, pleased to see this this piece of work, Grootveld, Percival, and Grootveld, 2018. All right. Uh, in in the Hepatobiliary Surgery and Nutrition <laughs> Journal, which just tickles we me. We used to get that one when I was a kid. <laughs> we had that around uh, around our house. It's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, yeah. it's not the most exciting publication, but it, it has its moments. Yeah, well, here's one of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. I would just like to point out the margarine is not gone. Um, yeah, it's still for well, sale. Well, no, 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 not not cold margarine. I'm sure you can buy actual margarine, but um, on all of the field trips and like group things that I've been on uh, through school and everything, there was always um, vegan butter as a thing that was around, which just sort of it's because lots of people are, including myself, are allergic to dairy, and so it just makes it easy if that's what you bring. Um, but having looked at it recently, it's exactly the same stuff. It's just, it's margarine, it's shortening, it's it's that. Yep. Um, it's yellow. Apparently they're allowed to sell it as yellow. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> because but, brave men in Congress, oh, they're on yeah, your I side. Guess. Brave but, men in Congress. Uh, it's, so now there's a different rationale, of course. It's not that, um, it's not the butter is bad for you. It's now that dairy is, it's like they've had, they have a different, basically, marketing branding. way yep. to, to get it into everyone's diets, but it's still certainly around. Yeah. No, and I mean, margarine is actually for sale as margarine as well still. Um, but I do actually, I do think uh, that the vegan angle is one that presumably in the 50s they didn't see coming. But, you know, they're going to convince a whole lot of people who think it's um, either immoral or dangerous to, to eat any animal products. And they're going to give them toxic lab sludge instead. <laughs> toxic. Mm. <laughs> toxic yeah. lab sludge. Mm. Yeah. But it's yellow. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. All right. Um, maybe that, that gets us there. It gets us somewhere. It gets us. It gets to, us here. It gets us uh, as far away from toxic lab sludge, yellow or not, as possible. All right. Yeah. So we are going to take a break, and then we will come back for a locals-only Q&A. Join us there. We're going to start with a question from the Discord server, as we always do. Um, but then we'll be um, actually looking at the chat and um, and just do a short Q&A, see how, see how this goes, see if this is how we want to do Q&As in the future. So come join us at Locals, please. Um, we've got lots of benefits there, and this is, this is one of them. Uh, 
Check out our stuff at darkhorsestore.org. We've got PSYOP until proven otherwise. Blueberries because accidents happen. Um, Goliath. Um, uh, Lie to a Tyrant. Mm. That's good. Our, our younger son is wearing that hoodie around. Actually, you are too. Are you both wearing that around? Yeah, it's very nice. Um, both our sons are lying to tyrants and hopefully not to us. <laughs> right. <laughs> that would be, yeah. That, yeah. That just indiscriminate lying is bad. No, you absolutely. Limit your lying to tyrants. Absolutely. Um, check out Natural Selections. Uh, a piece this week included in a small photo array from my unfortunate recent foray into Costco, um, which included beauty sponges brought to you by Hershey's and by Peeps. What does that even mean? I don't not hear. Actually, I'm going to, Zach, I'm going to. You know, you, can you show it my screen still? This is just the sign off. Hold on, I gotta find it uh, before I plug in. Um, I'm, I'm plugged in, but I'm not. I haven't found it yet. I'm not plugged in. I'm clearly incompetent. Okay, hold on. Um, yeah. So that's just that's the picture. I can you know, just um, what? But what does it mean? So there. Do you know what a beauty sponge no. is? No. Okay. <laughs> I don't really either. Um, but I believe that a beauty sponge is, um, well, it's it's um, it's like an open cell lab sludge, just to continue with the lab sludge. Is this but food? No. Oh. No, oh, this is not food. Okay. This is something that you can use to either um, to cake up your face, or maybe even if you put like some, some soap or oil on it to decake your face after you've walked through the day with your face obscured under a mat of artifice. Now I get it. So it's a beauty sponge. Yes. Which means it's like a, it's a lab sludge artifice sponge thing, but it's brought to you by Hershey's and Peeps. So the Peeps beauty sponges kind of look like Peeps. I don't know what Peeps are made of. They're grotesque unto themselves, obviously, but it, some of those sponges kind of look like Peeps, right? Ish. The, the, there's, a, there's a bunny and a chicken, I think. Maybe, but with the Hershey ones. But even what, what what are those? Are those chocolate? I mean, they're not. They're sponges. They're beauty sponges. What, what is going on here? What is I, actually I, happening? I do wonder what thought process. I mean, I'm not saying it's wrong. It may be that people are mindlessly shopping, and you can trigger their hunger circuits by showing them a familiar logo of a chocolate bar, and that causes them to. I, I don't know. But, I don't know either. Um, so most people will be familiar with Costco. Um, and I hadn't been in one, thankfully, in a long time. But so these were in the, uh, the what's the section with all the drugs? Like the, it's, the it's like the, section. it's the drugstore. Well, it's the drug, but they're not, but there's like a pharmacy and then there's a section that you can just walk through. So I just decided this time because it was grotesque outside and I was, I had time to kill. I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this like an anthropologist. I'm going to walk down every single aisle in the Costco, which I think I've never done before. So this was in that section, like in between like the Prilosec and the, I don't even know what. There's so many crazy things in that store. Um, so there wasn't any other food around, which may go to your mm. hypothesis that, uh, that wandering through, uh, you know, shampoo and, and, it's it's so dystopian 
every, every, everything. Like I, I did find myself at least in the fancy cheese aisle for a while going like, yes, this is real food. I like this. Yeah. I mean, one does not want to demonize Costco specifically because Costco should, like, is, uh, yeah. is better than most of these things. They're actually humane to their employees. Right. At, at a labor were, perspective and, as well. Yep. Uh, and they, you know, some of the products are higher quality than mm-hmm. you would find at, at competing, uh, big box stores. And they've got, re- I mean, the cheese is a good example, right? They've got, they've got ex- some excellent cheese. That said, it does still, I can't go into one of these places and not think Earth Liquidation Center. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. 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 And uh, in fact, I wrote about this a little bit this week in Natural Sections as well. I, again, I still had some time uh, and it was gross. And I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm just going to continue to do it. I'm going to go into some places that I don't normally go into. And I was like, oh, there's a... It's like a Ross dress for less. I'm not even sure if I've ever been to one of those before. It was a Bed Bath and Beyond, and I got close. Like the Bed Bath and Beyond has literally been liquidated. Um, like this, it was just empty, totally empty. Like I don't know if they were moving in or moving out or what, but the Ross, half the shelves were empty. Hmm. So it's liquidating Earth at the same time that things are becoming unavailable, even crap, even stuff that you shouldn't want to have available. Do you remember how Earth used to be when it was better? Um, I do. Yeah. Um, Okay, as long as I know we're signing off here, but I've got, sorry, I've got one more thing to show. Um, this this was from the Ross Dress for Less. Um, I did not rearrange anything, I swear to you. Just like most of the shelves are empty, and there was one sad lawn flamingo <laughs> with a Ross tag on his neck and a fire extinguisher sign in the background in case, I don't know why you would need to extinguish a fire in the store at this point, there's nothing to save. <laughs> <laughs> and a bunch of rolled up cheap carpet like this is 2024 welcome to it yeah it's gonna get weirder yeah it's gonna get weirder so um do join us on locals in 15 minutes or so for our q a and uh and yeah we appreciate you uh subscribing to rumble and locals and joining us there and sharing what you like and um liking what you share and well, liking hitting the like button mm, all right, right? Sure, yeah. sure. and um and we will we will, oh i forgot to say we will actually be back on saturday uh so we're gonna be back sooner this time rather than rather than later so we are going to come back to you on saturday at our new normal time 11 30 but our old regular day on saturday um so if you can't make it to the q a that's about to happen join us here again in four short days four three short days can't even do week math now um and until we see you next time be good to the ones you love eat good food and get outside be well everyone